So you have this complex variability of energy supply and an equally complex variability in consumer demand. And so you need a system. You need something in the middle that just balances the two out. So when you've got too much renewable power, a way of storing it, and when you've got too much demand, way of giving it back. What you do by the increase in density is one of two things fundamentally. So to get the same performance with water, you can reduce the vertical elevation by, again, proportionate to the increase in density and still get the same performance. And the advantage of that is that it opens up an order of magnitude or several orders of magnitude more sites. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vedya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we talk with Stephen Crozier, CEO of Re-Energize, high-density hydro. Stephen is based in London, UK, but he joins us from Warsaw, Poland. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here, Vidya. Thank you very much. Yeah, I should thank you. I know you had a long flight with delays and everything, but you made it in time for the recording. A few delays, but yeah, no, the, the journey from the airport was super quick. So we had, had a, a keen Polish taxi driver who was keen to get there very quickly. So that, that, that was quite exciting. So now on to our topic. You know, world leaders are paying more attention now than before about the warnings about climate change, making efforts to seek energy that is not derived from fossil fuels. One of the forms of renewable energy is hydroelectricity. But even in the ancient times, the Greeks used hydropower for their flower mills, the Egyptians had water screws for irrigation. Give us a simple lesson in physics. How can we harness energy from water? So harnessing energy from water, as you say, is a super old activity, you know, simple water wheels to turn flour mills or whatever it's been out for an awful long time. The basics of it are, are very simple. It's um, the vertical elevation you have. So the, the further it drops, the, the increase in the power and the more volume that goes down that drop, the more energy you have available. It's very much a, a relationship to the, the vertical elevation. And what one of the things that hydropower did was to change it from just running down the river to being able to pump it back up again. And so you effectively created a hydropower store with two reservoirs, one at the bottom and one at the top, often with three to 500 meters of vertical elevation difference. Um, I'll have to translate that into feet. So that's something like a, a thousand to 1500 feet, that sort of um, feeling. And the advantage of that is then suddenly you can store energy as well or electricity. And so you pump it up and then you release it again and generate electricity back through a turbine. So it's very much an evolution of this very old what you are talking about is a pump storage system, is it? Or That's right. So it's a pump storage system. So it's effectively like a big water battery that you use a mountain to sort of hold your energy. It's a, a simple concept, but most people are very familiar with batteries and but don't necessarily know that this, uh, this form of energy storage has been around for over 100 years. It's um, an incredibly mature technology. And first of all, it was built in during the 20th century. It was generally built because you had lots of baseload 
power from coal and nuclear often, which was just turned on and then it was running and running and running. And if you can't use the energy when you need it, you either have to waste it or you have to find a way of using it. And so pumped hydro was built to take that excess from nuclear power or coal power fire stations, which are running the whole time, and store it overnight when people are asleep and much less power is being consumed and then when the demand comes in the mornings and the evenings it would be released again and provide that additional electricity for the peak powers so that's how traditional pumped hydro works and that was used successfully throughout lots of the 20th century across you know many many parts of the world and pumped hydropower still accounts for around 95% of the world's energy storage. And what we're doing at Reenergize is somewhat of a a little twist on that, um, which I'll come back to. So pumped hydropower was um, used to balance nuclear and coal um, in the 20th century. But now with the coming of renewables that we've increasingly had over the last 15, maybe 20 years, is that we have a different problem. We don't have constant base load and variable demand. We now have variable supply from renewables. So with solar, you get it during the day. You don't get it at night. If you're in the far north on world, then you get much more in the summer than you do in the winter. And then with wind, there, there are places which are windy and places which are not so windy. And you have this very much variable supply, electricity supply coming from renewables, which creates a different set of problems. But again, you have this mismatch between intermittent renewables, and so it can be from hydropower. So again, with hydropower, you tend to get more in the winter when there's more rain, and so you get more flow, so there's more power there, and less in the summer, and sometimes it can even stop in the summer. So you have all these different types of renewable energies, which are either seasonal or uh, have their daily cycles, or in the case of wind, might have a twice-weekly cycle. So you have this complex variability of energy supply and an equally complex variability in consumer demand. And so you need a system. You need something in the middle that just balances the two out. So when you've got too much renewable power, a way of storing it, and when you've got too much demand, a way of giving it back. The premise of all this energy is that energy cannot be created or destroyed, only transformed. So you are taking the energy from the velocity, or rather hydroelectricity is taking the energy from the velocity of the fall of the water and taking that, capturing it, and using that to power another thing. And your invention, we'll come to it, but is so topical in my life is because Mindful businesses now moved close to Niagara Falls and where Nikola Tesla was one of the first people to transmit the electricity using AC current. Yeah, it's uh, one of the first huge projects was just upstream from Niagara Falls and it's um, you know still an impressive set of engineering and considering how long it's been there and how long it's been providing energy for it's just amazing and assuming it carries on raining in uh, the northern uh, american land mass and uh, um, then it's going to carry on being there it will be there forever or the potential will be there forever obviously things run out you know it's been a, an amazing source of energy for the people in that area and will continue to be so 
So, so it's super impressive what you can do from hydropower, and but also what you can do from increasingly from other renewables. Which is, and uh, you know, Nikolai Tesla was one of the people who was groundbreaking in enabling us to to do this this type of thing. Some of his thinking was, you know in advance of his time and we've been using it for well over 100 years so it's amazing so what would be the optimal elevation is there an optimal elevation or is it a formula between the the velocity in which the water falls down and the height or the key thing about hydropower is is elevation so when you double the elevation you double the power or you can halve the size it's pretty linear is it yeah, it's entirely linear. So you can either double the elevation and if you have the same amount of water flowing, then you'll get double the power. Or if you double the elevation, you can volumetrically half the water flow and achieve what you did before you had double the elevation. So it's entirely linear between elevation and power or water flow and elevation. So if you have very low, and it's called head in the hydropower industry, if you have very low head, then what you get is you need huge volumes of water. And when you go to very high head, you need much, much smaller volumes of water. So each time you double it, you can half the volume of water. For example, our re-energized high-density hydro projects, we talk about an envelope between 75 and 300 meters, which is, what's that, 200 feet to 900 feet, something like that. So that's the envelope that we're, we're talking about. But for us, a project at 75 meters is four times as big for the same effect as something at 300 meters. That just gives you an idea of why vertical elevation is so important. And that, that's true of all hydropower systems. I've visited Niagara Falls like three or four times in the last few months, and every time it's breathtaking, it's spectacular. I mean, in terms of hydropower projects, it's not super high, but in terms of the volume of water, it's absolutely huge. Hence, we are able to get the electricity, we were able to get as much hydropower from those falls. Exactly, yes. So what is the density of water? Your American listeners are going to hate me because they're going to have to Google how to translate it. So the density of water is one litre of water. So this is 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres of water. One litre is one kilogram. Um, One cubic metre of water is one tonne. So it's uh, the metric system makes it super easy to work out what the density of water is. And and, uh, one tonne of pure water is how the you know the metric system is derived in terms of of weight so that's you know find something common and use that to to base your um, weight system off so that's that's how it's done the density of water is the base for other densities that's right um something like seawater is slightly denser so if you had a a cubic meter of seawater then it's probably 1050 kilograms so it's like so the salts in it effectively increase the density slightly when you increase the density of something, you get an increase in performance equivalent to the increase in the density. And again, it's an entirely linear relationship, which is what we're trying to do at High Density Hydro is to or re-energize doing our high density hydro solution, which is to increase the density, which means we can make projects smaller or uh, reduce the vertical elevation. So if you increase the density of water, would the amount of electricity that you're able to generate change so what we're doing is it's a, an entirely mechanical systems in terms of it so you you pump this high density fluid up 
it takes more energy to pump it up than you would take to pump up water. The density of our fluid is two and a half times the density of water. So this is just over the density of concrete. So it's uh, significantly different. And so we have a fluid that's we call it the density of concrete that we're pumping up. So that takes more energy than it would for water. So the increase of en- energy it takes is proportionate to the increase in density. So two and a half times more energy to pump it up. And then when it's up there, you have two and a half times more energy than you would have had with water. And so when you release it, you, you effectively generate at two and a half times the rate that you would with water. So the round trip efficiency is the same as you would get with water. So your audience might be going, well, why bother them Um, (laughs) if the round-trip efficiency is the same? What you do by the increase in density is one of two things fundamentally. So to get the same performance with water, you can reduce the vertical elevation by, again, proportionate to the increase in density and still get the same performance. And the advantage of that is that it opens up an order of magnitude or several orders of magnitude more sites. So when we're driving in our cars or going on the train or whatever, we know that there are many more hills at, say, 300 feet than there are at 750 feet. That's really fascinating. Where are the possible locations of your solution? You can deploy your energy storage, your water battery type projects or your high density hybrid battery type projects close to where you need them so you can co-locate them with wind farms or you can have them near to solar farms or you can place them in places where there's congestion on the grid so there isn't enough capacity on the grid lines to push the electricity through all the time so you store it locally where that congestion takes place and then you can fill your store and then when there is the congestion is gone you can then release it again so you get a much more use of your grid infrastructure or you can place them near where you've got the demand and so you can store it while you've got excess energy coming through to the consumers say maybe overnight or if it's in an area with lots of solar during the day and then store it for the consumers when the sun's gone down or the wind's not blowing so so it just gives you a, a vast amount more opportunities basically problem most of the energy solutions is you're unable to store it even hydroelectricity you know we think we are turning on a switch and you know we're getting it but these are these turbines which are turned on and off based on the demand there are very few ways to store it as a solar wind has its challenges there are some solutions now to store solar and wind but like you said the grid is crowded often and you still though you generate it you're not able to store it and use it as required there's no real way of storing an electron when you've got the electrons flowing you've got to push enough electrons in at one end that you're using at the other and if you want to store it in between if you're pushing in too many electrons from the generators and there isn't enough being taken out in the other end you have to take it out and you convert it into something else and so battery is a electrochemical system so you're going from electricity to a through a chemical reaction and then when you want it back again it's a chemical reaction that delivers it back and for us we're using a mechanical potential so using gravity's potential to store it in a different way and you can store it as heat or cold but you have to change it you can't just keep hold of an electron the way i'm visualizing it is that in the kids have slime your product is almost like slime and it's going at such a slow pace that it's holding on to the energy and going up and then it comes down and it has captured all this energy 
on its way up. Is that correct? It's a good analogy, yes, but it's actually not at all like slime. So for American audience, it flows like half and half. It flows like a, a cream or something and th- that you might put in your morning coffee. The thing about creating something that is much more slime-like or honey-like or something like that is viscosity is not your friend. When things are viscous and sticking to the sides, it takes more energy to move it. You get losses in the system from having something very viscous. So high density is great and low viscosity is great. What about this liquid? Is it toxic? Is it safe for the environment? Even though we're in a closed-loop system, that something that you absolutely need to do is you, you don't want to ever have a spill and you put in lots of management systems to make sure that that doesn't happen. But you have to plan for the fact that something sometime will go wrong. And so the fluid has to be environmentally benign. It has to be non-toxic that if you did have a spill, then it would absolutely not kill fish or you know they, there would be no damage to the environment as a result of that. Those are some of our key criterias for our high density hydro. I remember when I was talking about the reduction in vertical elevation, I had a second point I was going to make about the advantages of a high density hydro system, which was rather than reducing the vertical elevation, the other thing you can do is make projects volumetrically smaller, proportional to the increase in density. And this gives you a huge opportunity for cost savings. So if you can reduce your construction costs by 60%, And in a traditional pumped hydro energy storage project, roughly 65% of the cost of a project is civil engineering. So if you can reduce that cost by 60% because it's volumetrically smaller, suddenly you have an economic advantage. Now, we do have to buy the fluid, which cancels out a proportion or depending on the vertical elevation, depends how much of a proportion it cancels out. It gives you a huge opportunity for cost saving. And then when you put together the cost savings and the reduction in the height, then suddenly you can think, well, actually, we can start manufacturing these turbines for our high-density fluid in more volumes, which means that you can then commoditize them and drive the cost down of the project. Your system is almost like a closed-loop hydropower system. It's almost like self-generating. There's no need for new inputs, and hence the low marginal cost of generating more energy. How does it work? One of the, exactly as you described, it's a a closed loop system. So you take renewable energy, you run pumps, you push the fluid up a relatively small hill, keep it there until you need the energy back, release it through turbine and regenerate electricity. The principle is very simple. One of the real advantages of the creation of a high density fluid, of creating your own fluid, in addition to the reduction in vertical elevation, and in addition to the the shrinking of the project, because it's a closed loop system, suddenly you can take this to a place where there's water shortages because it's closed. So traditional pumped hydropower is in places of high rainfall almost exclusively. So that's around 25% of the world's land area. So suddenly we have a closed loop system where so we're not subject to evaporation in the same way. We can go to a desert or a desert city and actually put these type of projects. So the Middle East is a potential market for us or in you know, parts of North Africa, which are really hot and, and dry, parts of the United States, where you would never put a traditional pumped hydro project. Suddenly, there's a pumped hydro-like solution that you can place in the 75% of the world's landmass that are not suitable for projects with water. The advantages are not only the lowering the vertical elevation, but it's just opening up the opportunities across the world for projects 
where they wouldn't have normally had them. So we find that very exciting. So are you the inventor of this solution? It came about from a conversation between myself and our now CTO, uh, someone called Thomas Patani, who's based in Montreal in Canada. So we do our mechanical and electrical engineering in Montreal. And the reason why that's such a good place is because it's the heart of the North American hydropower industry. So there's a, a great skill base that we can find for those type of engineering in, in Montreal. But the, the start of it came about from a conversation where Tamas and I had been going to various different energy conferences and everyone was going, renewable energy, the future, we need to completely decarbonize the grid and it's going to be wind and solar and hydropower and, and tidal power and wave power and all these other solutions. But we're going to have this variable supply and variable demand and we need something to store it. And the answer to storage is batteries. There was no mention of any other solutions out there, even though at the time, you know, 95, 96% of the world's energy storage was pumped hydro by power. And if you then look at it by energy, which are two different things, then it's over 99% of the world's energy storage is pumped hydro. And so I picked up the phone to Tamas, or it might have been an email, can't remember, but we just started talking why is this such this industry that is so mature being entirely overlooked in the energy transition? What is it about it, this industry? And then you look at it and you go, well, it's lack of available sites, it's water abstraction, it's the fact that the sites are far from people, so you need new power infrastructure, and that the rarity of sites means that the once you've found a good one, the incentive is to build it as big as possible, which means that they take years to con construct and you often need government backing to do them. And so it's a very slow-moving solution to the energy transition. So we just asked ourselves the question, well, you know, you have this such mature industry with this existing supply chain. Is there anything you can do with innovation? Because that's what I'm in Tamas and interested in to bring this 20th century industry into the 21st and help with the energy transition. And so we were talking and eventually you know, the suggestion came about saying, what if we increase the density of the fluid? And Tamas said, well, you know, the theory is that you'll get the performance increase proportionate to the increase in the density. And then he said, I've no idea whether it's possible um, or even exists or, you know, we should have a look into it. You know, is there a fluid that can, can do this? Is it environmentally benign? So, so that was the starting point. How did you increase the density? What is the basic fluid that you used first? We look, looked at lots of different things and there's some interesting very dense fluids which are either toxic or phenomenally expensive mercury would be great with 13 times the density of water but you know that it's uh, not so good environmentally or availability or cost wise so what we ended up with is a, it's a suspended solid in water so we create a, a fine powder we add various chemistry and ingredients to that and what that does is make the particles repel each other in a solution so a bit like uh, when you put two north magnets together they push themselves apart so it's the same sort of effect but within a in the solution of these particles and um, repelling each other that's how we create a stable suspension in water could you use wastewater so we can use any water it's a, so the fluid is an engineered system as well so you have to bring the water into a sort of a certain envelope or understand what that envelope is so 
yes, you can use salt waters, but you probably have to treat it a bit to get it within the envelope. And at the moment, we're using one mineral, which is widely available to us. But our intention going forward is to find other industries that have a waste, that have used these same materials that we can take from those industries and reprocess them into our fluid. We're also looking to expand the range of minerals that we can use, which does change the density. But if it's very local to where you want to build a project, then, then that's good. And then where we ultimately want to get to is whereby when you construct a project and the the rock that you take out to construct the project, you process that into your fluid, or a proportion of that. You may not be able to use all of it, or but there might be a proportion of it. So you actually use what is on site to create your project, which is a when we get to that point. And it's probably not every project you can do that on. Some of the the rock would be not suitable, but there will be a good number of sites where, where that is possible. Electricity that you're generating and you're storing, is that compatible with the existing system? Because the environment that it operates in is important for it to be made user-friendly. Absolutely. It's a, we, you design your, first your mechanical system, but then your electrical system to operate at the same frequencies and voltages that the grid operates at. And so you, you could either do synchronous generation where you synchronized to the grid at, at 60 hertz and you just provide it at that frequency into the grid so the grid doesn't know any difference it, it could come from a coal fire power plant or a wind turbine or a solar panel they all do the same thing that they match the the grid the other way you could do it is asynchronous where you go through an inverter and then the inverter follows what's on the grid so it relies on inertia from other parts of the system and it just follows whatever the grid is doing so that's the difference between synchronous and asynchronous generation and we could do either you could probably do both on the same project by uh, having part of your project set up in one way and part of the project set up in another so so maybe don't want to do that but you could as far as the grid is concerned it's just seeing another generator providing in this with the same characteristics as all the other generators on the system the beauty of your solution is that the number of sites available for this application is far more because you don't need the elevation that is required for water. That's correct. And it's just the sheer volume of sites. So, so across North America, we believe there are somewhere around 350,000 sites available to us. So it's just a vast number of sites. And I know the UK better um, because I'm based there. So in the UK, it's around 6,500 sites. And then when you look at what the UK is likely to need in terms of energy storage by 2040, say, so not very far away, 18 years, that something like 300 or 350 projects, depending on their exact size, would provide 25% of the energy storage needs of the UK. So it's not a vast number of projects that you need to build to actually make a fundamental difference. So in somewhere across North America, I haven't got the exact number in my head, but something like 350,000 sites, four or 5% of those, again, can provide a similar level of energy storage, 20, 25% of the, the US needs. And that's true of all countries. But what is also true of all countries is there are some places which are much better than others because you still need the vertical elevations. And in the United States, there's some bits which are very flat and those locations are not great for us. But also in those locations, you get mines, you get 
large quarries. So there is man, man-made activity whereby you can probably reuse some of those activities. So even in flat areas, there are, are good sites available to us. So you're saying you could take an abandoned site in Indiana where it's flat and um, use your solution to get the elevation that you want. But the demand for renewable energy is also increasing as we try to wean off gas. But right now, there is not, if everybody decided to become electric, there is not enough electricity to power all our needs. So the solution like yours is required now because not only to help the present consumption of electricity, but as we wean off gas, as we wean off petrol, as you know, we need the electricity, various ways in way we can generate, store the electricity locally and to be available and accessible to the people who are transitioning. Absolutely. And taking a step back, when the wind blows and the sun shines, you need to generate more than you need. And then generation that you've not used at that point in time, you need to capture it in some way. And, and, and it will be captured in different ways for different purposes. So some of it will be converted into hydrogen, and it will be used for industry or mobility in fuel cells, or it will be used in, in certain ways. Some of it will be stored in a system like ours, high-density hydro, others which will be stored in battery solution of different types. And there, there are other solutions as well. And there's no one solution that can do it all um, just because of the sheer scale of, of what needs to be done, that um, no one company is going to scale at the, the type of size. So, you, And there are different solutions for different locations for different durations. So lithium-ion batteries are really good for relatively short durations, two, three, maybe four hours. Something like green hydrogen would be great for your interseasonal storage because you've got uses for green hydrogen for mobility and heat and industry. Has your application been implemented somewhere? Yeah, we're just about to start building our first project in the the first part of next year. So we hope to start digging um, in May 2023. So six months away is when we first... And where is that? So that's in the southwest of the UK. So it's at an operational mine in, in the UK. So the advantage of that are things like you've got existing security that you don't, so you don't need to worry about that. And but but yeah, it's going to be a great project. It's it's still relatively small for us. It's a 500 kilowatt project, so still and will operate for two hours. Um, but that is you know, a really good first step and then once that's operational we expect to go to something like 10 times that size a year later and from there into commercialization and one of the advantages that we really feel in terms of scaling is just the the fact that our supply chain already exists we don't need to build gigafactories because there are companies across the world that make pipes and they might make pumps and they make turbines so we can find them on every continent and the design is different for our high density hydro as you would expect but the manufacturing skills and the manufacturing plants already exist so our ability to go from small volumes to large volumes is actually a relatively simple task for us we're not building a new gigafactory for a new battery chemistry what is the scale of the problem that you're trying to solve? That, that's a good question. Today in the world, we have somewhere around 170 gigawatts 
of energy storage. 95% of that is pumped hydro. You know, it's that sort of number anyway. Um, industry commentators, I can't remember who this is, but it's, it could be the IEA or it could be the Long Duration Energy Storage Council or one of these other consultancies. I can't remember exactly who it is. So industry commentators have recognised that from the 170 gigawatts that we need today, by 2040, we need around 2,000 gigawatts. So this is a more than 10 times increase in 18 years, which means that every 12 to 18 months, you need to replicate the entire world's energy storage that was built in the 20th century every 18 months. You know, just the scale of the problem is absolutely vast, which is why I was saying that you can't rely on one solution to deliver it, that you know, traditional pumped hydro will do some, we hope we'll do a lot, batteries will do some, uh, there are technologies that look at compressed air. There, uh, you, you need it all. You need the green hydrogen. So, it's uh, trillions of dollars are going to need to be spent on it. And and so the incremental cost of going from a, a system based on coal and gas as those plants retire, the incremental cost of replacing it with renewables plus storage, it's not that significant a percentage. And so the the cost of the consumer is unlikely to grow in fact it was more likely to reduce um, because once you've built a renewable energy project the marginal cost of production is negligible and the same with a energy storage project once you've built it you know the, the marginal cost of storing it and reproducing it is again negligible and you'll also decarbonize the power grid and you know hopefully mitigate the worst effects of climate change can you work in conjunction with solar and wind yeah, we see that as a, a very early opportunity, one of the the earliest opportunities. And that's why I'm in Warsaw, is to go to a solar conference to talk about that. Solar and storage is what we're talking about um, over the next two days. And what you have with a, we're talking about a solar project, is as more and more solar projects are built, that the revenues that the owner of that project can earn declines because other people are building solar projects. So you're all generating at the same time. So the revenue earned goes down to the point where it no longer becomes economically viable to bother to build the project or to generate. And so you then go, okay, well, it's still a cheap solution. If only I can shift the time or, as the industry calls it, change the dispatch shape of your energy. And so this is where energy storage comes in. So you can co-locate with something like a solar project or you don't even need to be on the same site. You can be you know, within a few miles of it and you can run the power between the two. And so you, you then store what you don't use or you choose to store because the prices are too low. A project owner will go, the prices are too low. They might even be negative, the prices, because prices do go negative. The owner might go, well, I'm not going to sell at a negative price. I will go and store it until the price rise, rises back up. And we're confident that within a few years, solar projects without storage will be increasingly unviable. They won't be able to capture the prices in the market unless they've got storage because everyone else will be generating at the same time. And so you need to change your dispatch shape so that you can provide the power when the prices make the project economically viable. Actually, we are in the process of building a sustainable home here in Buffalo, New York. And with solar panels, we will capture only 39% of what we need because of, you know, the shorter days. And then in summer, we have long days, but 
The problem is there is no way to store that for the needs in winter. There are a number of solutions to do that. There are residential energy storage solutions, so you can go down that route. Or They're not that efficient, I've heard. Not necessarily, and also quite costly. But again, there are increasingly developed sharing schemes around communities and um, whereby uh, a community together will do something that at a larger scale that benefits the whole community. There's some really interesting work in the UK about how to create those shared generation assets, wind and solar, and how to, it will come fairly quickly how you create shared storage assets and then everyone benefits from that everyone gets low-cost renewable energy that they own and they can sell to the grid because often the grid is that the owners of the grid they're not very interested if you or i as a, an individual householder have got a bit too much solar power they're not really very interested in buying it partly because they've probably got quite a lot more from other people who are generating it and so you tend to just have to give it to them you know find a way of using it but if there was a community doing that together and you were sharing that then your ability to share it around as different households or even local businesses have different energy profiles then you can create a much a very interesting local economic sort of which is great a friend of mine described as the democratization of energy so you've received some funding from the uk government how much have you received thus far we've been awarded nine and a half million pounds in the last few months of uk government funding which is you know great thank you very much and we're just in the process of gearing up our management systems to start spending and we're actively recruiting where we have project managers on board we're placing orders to do the work to deliver and build those projects and that work so it's a really exciting time and it's really meant that as a business we're accelerating very rapidly we're having to hang on with our fingertips to stop falling off at the moment so this is a question that i ask several guests who are solving a problem as large and as impactful, not only large, but it'll impact our climate, our living. Have you patented this technology? We have had one patent fully granted just recently, and I am going to let you be the first to know we've just had our second patent fully granted just a few days ago. And we have a whole pipeline of other patents across the various subsystems that we're working on. So um, we have, we're developing patents in fluid formulation chemistry, and then in how to manage that fluid over time because you need to, it's an engineered system, so you need to manage it. And then in turbo machinery, the fluid affects turbo machinery. So you need to develop your engineering um, of a traditional pump or turbine. It needs to be evolved for a high-density fluid. Then control of the system and the whole system design are all areas for patents and IP for us. With all these patents, what is your business model? Will Reenergize set up all these plants or do you have a licensing model? Our core model is a licensing model. We want to make a difference to climate change. And the way we see to do that is to enable other people to build projects globally, simultaneously, and make sure that we license our IP to them and then help facilitate those projects. So that's how we see scale happening. It doesn't prevent us from uh, potentially developing our own project pipelines and exploring other business model. But our key idea is let's get lots of people building these projects in lots of countries simultaneously thank you again for coming on mindful businesses we are talking to stephen crozier 
of Re-Energize. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much, Vidya. It's been a pleasure. We would love to hear from you. Send us a voice note or an email with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this episode in Buffalo, New York. Our theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Roseanne Korean. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashrija. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.